I want to start the new year off right. Financial Peace University is a great, great thing to put on your to-do list for this coming year. And how about that photo of me with the sledgehammer? I looked awkward, didn't I? And then there's three guys bigger and stronger than I am standing there watching me. You've got to go figure. Well, this is it. It's the final Sunday in 2018, and so we have a task this morning together to close out 2018 and look forward to 2019, and we're going to do that together by studying the scripture a little bit and also celebrating the Lord's Supper, as you see on the table there before us this morning. Now, I have to be honest, I like the occasion of New Year's, but I'm not really into celebrating New Year's. Does that make sense? They say youth is when you get to stay up for New Year's, and middle age is when you have to. That's kind, of, that's kind of where I am. And to, I just have to be honest and get off my... I don't care about the ball dropping, all right? It just it, it doesn't do anything for me now. If that's your thing, have fun with it. But I do like the occasion of a new year and the chance it gives me to reflect on the one gone, gone by and to retool, refocus, and get ready for the one to come. I believe that God has built renewal into his universe. For example, every day, the sun comes up accompanied by new mercies. Every week, there's a day of rest. Seasons come and go on a predetermined schedule. And New Year's is another occasion to hit the reset button with gratitude for the past and expectation for the coming year. And so I do really value New Year's. I just don't need to bang on pots and pans at midnight. That's all I'm saying. I want to talk to you this morning about something that transcends the usual New Year's focus, something perhaps deeper than the usual resolutions to drop 10 pounds, get in shape, get back on a budget, spend more time with the kids. Those are good things. I recommend them. But there's something bigger and better that I wish for you and for me in the new year, and I'm calling it the joy of redemption. The joy of redemption is the theme of Psalm 126, and that's the passage we're going to look at this morning. I want to encourage you to open your Bible and look at it, and I'd like to read it out loud, Psalm 126. Listen to what the scripture says. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy carrying sheaves with them. Psalm 126 is part of a group of psalms known as the Songs or Psalms of Ascent. That is, Psalms for Going Up. It's a collection of 15 psalms. In your Bible, it's Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. These traditionally were used by the nation of Israel on those occasions each year when the faithful would make pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem for the annual festivals. Now, some of them are attributed to David. Others, like the one we just read, 126, likely come from the post-exilic period after God's people had returned to their homeland following 70 years in captivity in Babylon. 
these psalms are relatively short. And I think that's so that you can memorize them easily and recite them or even sing them while you're making your pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, as you might know, is not situated on a hill. So when you go to Jerusalem, you're going up. Hence, the songs of ascent, psalms for going up. I think of them as a holiday collection of psalms, sort of like we have our, our collection of Christmas carols, which has grown over the years and which are very specific to a certain celebration in our calendar. And that's kind of how these psalms are. These psalms reflect confidence in God and the joy of belonging to him, the joy of being his people. So the joy of redemption. Redemption is not a word that occurs in the psalm, but I think it's the concept, the theme that runs through it. Now, redemption is a thoroughly biblical word. I don't think I would be overstating the, the case to suggest that that one word, redemption, is the key theme of the entire Bible, from cover to cover, from beginning to end. Redemption is describing the work of God to rescue and restore a fallen people and a broken world. That's redemption. Working definition, what is redemption? Just based on what we've read in this psalm, redemption is God's rescue of his fallen people, restoration to a place of God's favor, and it's accompanied by rejoicing and reaping benefits of God's favor. So if you like the word, the letter R, you're in luck today. So redemption focuses on two things. The first is redemption is seen in God's rescue. The rescue of his people and their subsequent rejoicing. Verse 1 says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Now the 1984 New International Version put it this way. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, to Jerusalem. And so it would be a psalm celebrating the Lord's rescue of his people following 70 years exile in Babylon. And what's their response? We were like those who dreamed. Their joy of rescue was so incredible, they could hardly believe it. Am I just dreaming? Somebody pinch me. The rescue just seemed too good to be true. Now, rescue is the key component of redemption whether it be rescue from political captivity or rescue from sin, we all need rescue. And redemption requires that I embrace a rescue that, first of all, comes from outside myself. I can't do it on my own. I can't rescue myself. I need a help that comes from outside of myself. I need someone to rescue me and and redemption has always been about that, a rescue that comes from outside of ourselves. And you can trace this through the scripture, starting in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. They had disobeyed God, were separated from God, and God himself came down and clothed them with skins of an animal. Rescue came from outside of themselves, and it also came at a cost to someone else. When the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, they experienced God's rescue that they couldn't provide for themselves. Through, that, through the man Moses and through God's mighty hand and outstretched arm, through miraculous signs, God brought about a rescue which they could not produce for themselves. It included the death of a sacrificial lamb whose blood was applied to the doorposts of their homes. And that protected them when the angel of death 
passed over. And this became the, the chief uh, rescue celebration for the children of Israel. Later, the nation of Israel experienced God's, uh, God's uh, punishment with their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. But again, God rescued them, even announcing ahead of time that after 70 years through the hand of a king named Cyrus, I'm going to bring you back to this land. It's a rescue that comes from outside of ourselves. And all of these rescues anticipated and point ultimately to our spiritual rescue found in Jesus Christ. John the Baptist made the connection between Christ and that sacrificial lamb when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is our rescue, coming from outside of ourselves that we couldn't conjure up on our own, or, and it came at great cost. And the Lord's table, as we'll celebrate in a few minutes, celebrates the cost that Christ paid when he laid down his life as our rescuer, our redeemer. You need a rescue from outside of yourself. I need a rescue from outside of myself. I, I can't, we can't save ourselves from our own sin and selfishness. We can't make up for it by trying harder to do better. We can't camouflage it over and through the pursuit of pleasure. We can't ignore it and hope it will go away. We need a rescue from outside of ourselves. We need a rescuer. And I want to tell you that your life ultimately will not make sense you will not experience ultimate significance and meaning in, in this life or the next unless you experience the joy of redemption through a spiritual rescue offered to you by Jesus Christ. Redemption is the work of God on your behalf, but it is a rescue which you must embrace for yourself. God is pursuing you. God is calling you into a love relationship with himself, but it's not forced upon you. And what I care about most for you as you close out this year, as you move into the next one, is that you experience this rescue, which you cannot bring about on your own, but of which you must be a participant. This is the role of faith. When I acknowledge my need and call out to God, when I call out to Christ to rescue me, he forgives our sin. He makes us new from the inside out. It's a rescue that God has provided for us in Christ. And when we experience this, the words of the psalm become our words. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. The other thing about this rescue is that it results in, in a heart of gratitude on the part of those who've been redeemed and rescued. I direct my gratitude to the one who rescued me. The joy of redemption is experienced through a grateful heart. The Lord has done great things for us. And we direct our gratitude back to him. We know where our rescue has come from. Now, gratitude's not a vague general feeling of happiness or thankfulness. It has to have an object, a person, to whom we direct that gratitude and that thanks. And that person is God. The Lord has done great things for us. That's why we're filled with joy. We know where to direct our gratitude. Now, the human experience of gratitude is actually evidence for the existence of God. It's part of what is called the ontological argument, for there's something in the human spirit that longs to direct gratitude somewhere to someone, even if we don't know who that someone is. Now, Chuck Colson, in his book, The Good Life, tells an interesting story of being filled with an overwhelming sense of gratitude, and this was even before he acknowledged the existence of God. 
I want you to listen to a little bit of what he says. He says, I was, I was on a lake in New Hampshire where I had taken a 14-foot day sailor to teach my two sons to sail. On, on one of our ventures across the lake, Christian, who was then 10, grabbed the sheet and was so excited over actually being able to sail the boat that his eyes sparkled. I was in the stern holding the tiller. I saw in my son's expression the joy of a new discovery as he felt the wind's power in his hands. In that unguarded moment, I found myself saying, thank you, God, for giving me this son, for giving us this wonderful moment. I went on to tell God that if I were to die tomorrow, I would feel my life had been fulfilled. When I realized what I had done, I was startled. I had no intention of trying to talk to God, whoever he was, if he did exist and was even knowable. I certainly was not intellectually convinced that God existed, but I had to admit I was overcome with gratitude for that unforgettably rich experience with my son Chris, and I needed to thank someone, God. At one level, it seemed I couldn't conceive of his not existing, but I shook this experience off. I reasoned that I'd been under a lot of stress in my life. Strange things happen. What moved me that day to talk to God was an overwhelming sense of gratitude for that incredibly joyous experience. Gratitude, I discovered, is built into every one of us as, as a human characteristic. When you wake up in the morning, lift the window, feel the fresh spring breezes, see the sun rising in the east, aren't you filled with gratitude? I'm grateful every day that I'm alive, grateful that I have a wonderful family, grateful that I have purpose in life. Can you imagine believing that you didn't? If there's nothing out there except a great vacuum, why should you feel grateful for anything? But there isn't a great vacuum. There's a great God who rescues and redeems. And those of us who have been rescued know where to direct our gratitude. And that is where we experience in a real and palpable way every day the joy of redemption. If you want to experience the joy of redemption in the coming year, you'll need to direct your gratitude to God, acknowledging that he's there, that he's involved with your life, and that he's rescued you. That you would have that kind of personal connection to God is the whole reason he brought you into existence in the first place and drew you to himself. Gratitude is your worship. Don't start a new year without it. Don't don't put your feet on the floor in the morning without that confidence. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. So that's rescue. The second, the second part of, of redemption is restoration. Redemption is seen in God's restoration of his people and their subsequent reaping, the benefits of that restoration. Verse 4 says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, the Negev is that part of the land of Israel that's just bone dry in the summer. But in the rainy season, its life is renewed. It's a restoration to life and to productivity and fruitfulness. And, rest, and redemption is about the restoration of, God's restoration of what was lost. And that's a theme that runs through a lot of the Bible. And the prophets, too, is thinking of the, the prophet Joel 
who used the analogy of a locust plague that ravaged the land. And he gives this promise from God. It says, I will repay you for the years the locust has eaten. It's a restoration. And God specializes in this. It's, it's part of his redemption of all things for, his good, for our good and for his glory. Here's how it happens. You and I will experience this restoration as we accept God's promise to redeem hardship and loss for good purposes. Now, that's a mouthful. We accept God's promise to redeem hardship and loss for good purposes. I don't think that life makes any sense apart from the conviction that there is a God who controls and directs all things for his own good purposes. Now, this is called the doctrine of God's Providence. Providence can be described, defined as God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions for their own glory. Do you believe this to be true? In other words, the same God who created me loves me, knows me, is always with me, guiding all situations and circumstances of my life at all times for good and godly purposes, some of which I may see in this life and understand and others which I will not understand or see or become clear to me except in eternity. Providence means that God is always at work for his glory and for my good. So my daughter Ellie, nine years old, enjoyed a fortune cookie and then read aloud the fortune. Tomorrow, something fabulous will happen to you. And she said, Dad, is that true? So I, I pulled on all my years of accumulated wisdom and biblical knowledge, and I leaned forward and I said, I guess we'll just have to wait and find out. <laughs> what a horrible answer. She's really asking, can this be trusted? Our lives, down to the very last detail, they're not guided by the whims of a fortune cookie or a horoscope or a, the, or, or, or a random chance of a universe that doesn't have a God. Our lives, every last detail, are guided by a good and loving God who can and does redeem even the most difficult things for his good purposes. And this is the mindset of faith. It's the mindset by which we do life. It's the means by which we can experience the joy of redemption regardless of the situation. Experience it every day and through every circumstance. This is providence. Don't put your feet on the floor in the morning unless you have this conviction that everything that's going to happen to you today is in the control of a God who loves you and knows you and has good things in mind for you. Now, there might be those who would throw up the, ejection, the who, opponents to this idea who might throw up the objection, naming some horrible evil or injustice in our world and say, see, see that? How can any good come out of that? How can you say there's a good God when he allows something like this to happen? And I'll admit that I might not be able to answer that question. But I, I want you to think about this. The very notion that the human heart cries out for someone to help us make sense of our suffering indicates that we really do believe that meaning exists. For if we truly believe that the universe was guided by random chance, nothing else, we'd be, we'd be content to live a life without meaning or purpose. But none of us seem content to do that. We all search for meaning and purpose. We want to know that our lives and its events, good and bad, all have meaning. So think about this. Even if we are unwilling to acknowledge the existence of God and instead conclude that life and all its events are simply the products of random chance, the, 
random chance of a, of a universe without God. It's interesting that still, inadvertently, we use expressions that reveal our implicit desire for an ordered and purposeful universe. I'll give you a few examples. Someone, someone, um, someone may say of their true love, we were meant for each other. Now, wait a minute. In a universe guided by random chance, there can be no meant for. Meant for implies intentionality, that someone, somewhere, or some force intended for you to be together and designed you for one another and orchestrated events for you to meet and fall in love. Random chance can't do that. Apart from God, there's no meant for. Here's another example. Someone might say, well, fate was on our side today. Wait a minute. Fate, by definition, can't take sides. It's neither for you nor against you. It just is. To be on your side implies that someone somewhere chose to be good to you. Random chance doesn't make choices like that. A good and loving God does. Another example. I guess the cards were just stacked against me. Wait a minute. A random universe cannot be for or against you. It cannot be for or against anyone. Random chance doesn't give a rip about you. It can't. But the very suggestion that the cards were stacked for me or against me implies that there's a force or a person behind the scenes working for me or working against me. Apart from a God of providence, a statement like that makes no sense. You understand what I'm saying? Even in expressions like these that we use all the time, where we personalize the impersonal, we reveal our desire for an ordered and purposeful universe. You know what? It's the Christian worldview alone that provides this. We believe that God is in control of all things and is working all things for his glory and for our good. It's only a Christian world and life view which provides any sense out of suffering or hardship. A godless universe ruled only by random chance can't make any sense of it. Logically, it can only lead to dismay and despair. If you want to live the coming year with the joy of redemption, you'll have to embrace the truth that no matter what happens, a good and loving God is going to be with you. He's going to work all things for your good and for his glory, even the hard stuff which we can't understand and might not choose. Maybe 2018 was one of those years for you where you had a hard time seeing his good and loving hand guiding your life. The psalm says those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. This is the confidence of those who know that God redeems all things for his good, for his glory and for our good. Are you willing to hold on to that promise as you move into a new, new year? As you move into a new day? as you face whatever it is you're facing, and we don't even know what we're going to be facing yet, you arm yourself with this confidence, and then you can say with the psalmist, no matter what happens, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. That's the joy of redemption. And then the last thing here is we'll reap, we'll reap the benefits of a surrendered life. As God restores us, we begin to reap the benefits of a life that's surrendered to, to him. Now, we don't surrender our lives to God so that he will bless us, but it's indisputable that he will and that he does. 
Psalm says, those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Even if you're just a casual gardener, you probably understand this verse. The joy comes in reaping at harvest time. Everything leading up to that feels like a lot of hard work. But God has established his universe a principle of of sowing and reaping. And as we embrace God's rescue of us, and as we order our lives under his faithful hand, we reap the benefits of a surrendered life. Now, I had a good time recently reading a book by Anthony Stark called America's Blessings, How Religion Benefits Everyone, Including Atheists. Stark is a religion sociologist and based on research demonstrates that contrary to the idea that America is becoming increasingly secular and atheistic, religion and faith are on the rise and we as a society and as individuals reap the benefits of America's commitment to religion. It's really interesting. He points out that in 1960, 4% of Americans claimed to be atheists, and then in 2008, 4% of Americans claimed to be atheists. In other words, atheism is not on the rise. Religion is. Now, it may be true that some of the mainline traditional churches have been in decline for several years. There's probably a variety of reasons for that, but independent, conservative, evangelical churches more than make up for that. Conservative, independent, evangelical churches are springing up all over the place. You know, I was just thinking, seeing this room packed out three times just a few days ago on Christmas Eve demonstrates to me that many, many people, even on some small level, consider faith, church, and God to be something worth getting dressed up for, even if only on Christmas. Stark, in his book, gives us the facts about the benefits Americans reap as people of faith. My teenage boys, when they agree with something, they say, facts. So Stark's given us the facts about the benefits Americans reap as a religious society. He talks about weekly church attenders. Now, weekly church, that might not be the best indicator of a person's faith, but it's certainly an easy one to measure. Here's some things of true that are true of people who attend church weekly. They are more likely to be happily married than those who don't attend church. They are half as likely to be divorced. They are more likely to describe themselves as very happy as opposed to pretty happy or not so happy. They are less likely to be in treatment for mental health problems. They are more likely as students to have a superior, superior level of academic achievement. Financially, weekly church attenders are more likely to own their own homes and less likely to be behind on their rent or mortgage payments, especially those who attend Financial Peace University. <laughs> Here's some other interesting statistics. Religious Americans are less likely to drink and drive, more likely to wear their seatbelts, more likely to use trash bins than they are to litter, and if it matters to you, more likely to stand during the national anthem. These aren't formulas for how to live a good life. They are observations of what happens when a people acknowledge that there is a God and I'm not him and when we seek to order our lives around that belief, we reap. 
when I invite God into my life as rescuer and redeemer, and when I acknowledge that all good things are from his hand, and when I direct my heart in gratitude in his direction, and when I surrender my life to his will in the good and in the bad, he blesses us. He blesses me, not just in the promise of eternity, but an eternity whose blessings begin here and now. We reap. So as you move into the coming year, I hope you're able to drop 10 pounds and get back in shape and get on a budget and spend more time with the kids if those are things on your list of resolutions. And to be honest, those are good things. I am more focused on those kinds of setting goals like that now than at any other point in my life, so I'm not speaking against that. But all of that feels really thin, however, without this confidence. And this is what I wish for you most, the joy of redemption, knowing knowing God and belonging to him, confident of his love for you and trust in his good plan for your life. And I don't know, that, that almost does make me want to get out some pots and pans and bang on them at midnight. What I want us to do now is celebrate the joy of redemption that is ours by partaking in the Lord's table. Someone